Hello, my dear listener, and welcome to Is This It? I'm your host, Dana Grinberga, and I'm here to have meaningful conversations with talented and purpose-driven people to discover what mindset allowed them to overcome their greatest challenges and achieve success and share it with you so you can do the same. On today's episode, Dr. Sam Kurashi, former psychiatric resident, now a mind researcher, Instagrammer, and coach. Why does that word hurt you? This is the only time I will use the word why. It's because of the emotions. Focus on the emotions, heal the wound, and it no longer bothers you. And then you have a choice of whether to keep enforcing it as a boundary or just to let it go and minimize your boundaries because boundaries can also trap us. The boundaries we create around us push people away, but the boundaries also can keep us trapped and limit our ability to play and enjoy and explore the world. The fact that you don't know how to read music means that you can play in ways that we as musicians are limited by because we have rules to follow and you can break every single one of them because you don't even know they exist. Sam. Yes. Tell me about your early days. Paint a picture of your childhood. I was born in Syria. After two months, we moved back to Saudi. Saudi is basically where my family lived. But my grandma, she's from Iran. Persian. She was in in in, uh, in Syria, so my mom wanted to basically deliver there, and then we came back to Saudi, and I lived there my entire life. So all the way from kindergarten to medical school to working in an addiction hospital for seven years, everything was in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. I had a happy childhood. Just I had a lot of alone time. I had a lot of friends as well. I have two half sisters, two sisters, and a brother. My brother is the closest to me in age, and he's 15 years older than I am. So I was like the last of the Mohicans that was basically born. And I looked up to them, but they were in university. My two sisters were in London. My brother was in the US. So growing up, and my, brother, my father was traveling a lot, so I spent a lot of time with my mom. But I would see them every time when they come. So I had alone time. I didn't have siblings in the house. So I had a lot of alone time. And I think that really contributed to the ability to reflect and introspect because I had that time. And because I had alone time as a child, children are free to come up with incredible worlds and games for themselves. And I would, I cherished my alone time. When I spend time with friends I enjoy, I have friends that come over, I go to see my friends, I have a lot of outdoor activities, indoor activities. But whenever I spent time with my friends, as much as I enjoyed it, I craved coming back and having that alone time. That's how much I loved it. That's so interesting. What <laughs> so, was happening in that alone time? What worlds were was, you creating? I was very imaginative in, in the worlds I created. I created games out of everything. And children do that. Children are very, very resourceful when it comes to that. But it's, it's the safest world to be in, really. It's, it created a very strong foundation of safety. If you're alone, no one can hurt you. If you're alone, no one can threaten you. If you're alone, you don't have to share anything with anybody because that was a pitfall for me because that was there was a bit of selfishness in me because I was used to having things my way because I'm alone, right? That's a pitfall that I needed to work through a bit. But I quickly learned to be selfless, which over time in my life became my downfall for a while. And that was crippling that I focused on others so much that I neglected myself. And one thing that I've learned is when you focus on others and you neglect yourself, you compromise your self-esteem because what you say is you don't matter. When you focus on other people so much, you never give yourself time. Now, I've detached from what was sacred to me 
And maybe there are people that never really had that because they always had siblings, so they never really understood how incredible that world is, that that space is to nourish, to reflect, to think about your day, think about what happened, think about what you want to do instead of being distracted. Because if you have a, a, a toy with your sibling, there's the sharing, you may have rivalries, the, they, your sister may want to annoy you and you know tease you, and there's a distraction from presence, which is something that was instilled in me because of the alone time. I became very present. Whenever I do something, I'm super present. Nothing else exists, nothing else matters but the person in front of me or the thing that I'm doing. And that's because of the alone time of my childhood. That's not to say we need to isolate our children, but giving them that space is very healthy because it allows them. It's not about trapping them or keeping them there when they're angry to... No, it's about giving them that space and allowing them to learn to enjoy being alone but also have the flexibility of enjoying being with others. It's a grounding. It's training for being grounded. It's training for being present. It's training for, for learning to connect with others. Because if you have a strong foundation of safety, it's very easy to not be threatened by others. The more I focused on myself, the less I needed others. That doesn't mean I don't connect with others. I don't care about others. Of course I do. But the more you focus on others, focus equals dependence. And if you focus on others, you become dependent on others. Who would you rather be dependent on, yourself or others? We learn to, we're, we're condemned to being alone. We're condemned to enjoying being alone. We're condemned to focusing on ourselves, and it's called selfishness. I don't have a word for it, but I think that if we were to divide, there could be healthy selfishness, or maybe a different word for it. But we're condemned to put ourselves first and prioritize. But how can you fill others with an empty cup? How can you sustain being there for others if you're not there for yourself. Even the mother is, is required to put the mask on her first on a plane. We need to focus on ourselves. And I thought about this last year. Focus on self or others, which one? And my, my, to me, like my formula is focus on self first, focus on self more. Never neglect focusing on others, but focus on self first and focus on self more. And then you can, we tend to resist others and resent others without knowing that unconsciously we're resenting them because they're taking us away from focusing on ourselves. And that's an unconscious thing that most people don't even know about. This is so true. And I, I feel this quite often. I was just about to mention that we're touching upon this area of balance. I think that uh, one must have to have a fulfilled and a happy life between the time that you spend with yourself and the time that you spend with others. And of course, it goes back to also being maybe introverted or extroverted. But what I'm trying to say is managing your energy and knowing where you, how you gain energy and how you expend it is really, really important. Yes. So for me, this is a, a recent thought even. I, I just realized if I don't get enough alone time, I'm going to be distracted with others. I'm going to be frustrated potentially with others because in my mind, I'm going to be thinking, no, there's this, 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 and that. And actually, I don't have the energy to give to you right now. Whereas when I spend, when I've recharged my batteries, when I've spent enough time alone and I've processed all the information that needs to process, then I crave being with other people. I crave connecting because I want to give them the energy that I've accumulated. I want to share with that. But it's about balance. Absolutely. Whether, and I want to be clear, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, it's important to, be, to spend time with others, to connect. It's a primary need. 
And it's important to be alone. It's important to be alone, as long as you're alone in the right way, for the right reasons. If you're alone, and I think a, a kind of like a macro concept here is the idea of fear-based. If it's fear-based, don't do it. If, you're in, if your decision is fear-based, take a step back. Make sure your decisions aren't emotional, but make sure it's not fear-based. Make sure it's for the right reason. If the reason why I'm alone is because I want to avoid people because I feel intimidated, then you're doing the right thing because alone time is healthy for you, but you're not benefiting from it and you're doing it for the wrong reason because it's fear-based. It contaminates the quality of what you're doing. Emotions are another thing. I remember Lewis Howes was mentioning something about he wanted to be successful to prove other people wrong. That's an example. And then he realized how damaging that was. A lot of people told him he can't succeed. And now he has one of the top podcasts in the world. And what he did was he focused on doing the right thing for the wrong reason. <laughs> you became successful not to express your truth self and authentic self and become who you were meant to be and be an inspiration for others and connect with others and lift the world with your true potential. But you did it because you wanted to prove people wrong. If you prove people wrong, two things will happen. One, you're going to be disappointed because the day you're going to rub it in their faces, you're not going to see what you want to see. And if they're happy for you, you're going to feel horrible because you thought that they would not be happy for you and you were misinterpreting this. And if they pretend to be happy, they didn't give you what you wanted. But even if you saw that look on their face, it's not going to satisfy you because you're seeking their approval. The reason why you wanted to prove them wrong, the reason why you want to prove them wrong is because you want to seek their approval. Very important. So you're doing it for someone else instead of doing it for yourself, which means you can't be happy if the other person doesn't give you the stamp of approval. Either the person is upset that you succeeded, which kind of fills you up with joy, which isn't really healthy, and it's not real joy, or they, they, they give you the stamp of approval and they tell you, I feel proud of you, like a mom or a dad that doesn't, isn't proud of you for who you are and doesn't give you unconditional acceptance as a foundation. So you have to work to be accepted by me. And guess what? Just like Dr. Gabor was mentioning in his book, you don't, if you don't have, he didn't, I don't think he mentioned unconditional acceptance. Maybe he did, or maybe that was my phrase. But if we don't have the unconditional love from our parents, we have to work for it. We have to behave. We have to succeed. We have to accomplish something. We have to work for the acceptance. Then we will work, we will continue to work for it, for the, towards it for the rest of our lives, with everyone else in our lives. And that's disastrous. Because now you're, everything is tainted because you're doing something for the wrong reason. You're doing something when that should have been given to you. Unconditional acceptance needs to be the soil. And one of the things he was mentioning is that is the soil that allows children to not just get older, but grow up. Because there's a difference. And we have a lot of people that have gotten older, but haven't grown up. The maturation requires unconditional acceptance. And that's part of the trauma that a lot of people have in terms of childhood. A lot of people, we didn't get to trauma. I didn't have the opportunity of talking to Dr. Gabor about the trauma because we just talked about so many things, but we're probably going to be covering it in, our, in the sequel at some point. Everybody's traumatized. Everyone's traumatized in some way or form, mostly in childhood, but also in adulthood. Most of my traumas, actually, I don't remember being traumatized as a child. I had a happy childhood. My traumas were during the teenage years on beyond, my 20s. That was the worst traumas that happened to me in my life. And 
it doesn't matter, but everybody was traumatized, whether it's childhood. Have you been able to work through them? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, that was part of the work, actually. Was that one of the reasons why you went into the medical field? Actually, I was going to ask you that. So here's what's interesting. In terms of medical, uh, as a medical professional, I didn't want to be a doctor. That's the first thing. I did not want to be a doctor. I thought it was too complicated. I just didn't, just didn't want to be. I, I didn't see myself as a doctor. My dad wanted me to be a doctor. I mean, it's a story as old as time. And I refused. I insisted on not being a doctor. He pressured me. And I... Why didn't you want to be a doctor? I just didn't want to. I just didn't see myself. I wasn't passionate about it. And I... Yeah. Anyway, so I was thinking of a thread linked to that. But I don't think it's, it's significant in this moment. But in terms of... Which happened a few years into medical school. But in terms of that, I was just... I didn't want to do it. So in terms of going into getting into medical school, he didn't want me. He wanted me. I didn't want to. He pressured me. And I thought, okay, I'll get into medical school and I'll prove him wrong. Mm. I will fail miserably. And I just didn't study. I didn't care. Halfway through the first year, when I saw the results, I knew it was going to be bad. I just didn't know it was going to be that bad. And something changed inside of me because I wasn't operating out of integrity. I compromised the kind of person I am just to prove a point. And the only person that paid a price was me. So I took responsibility from that moment and I started focusing on studying. And I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed understanding the human body. I enjoyed over time connecting with people. I enjoyed going through it. Now, the thing that I was fascinated by as I started was self-development. And the closest thing to self-development in medicine was psychiatry which is the reason why when I graduated, I got into psychiatry. I spent seven years in an addiction hospital, seen over 10,000 patients, helped every single one of them. It's a lot in seven years because I, was, um, I wasn't in the ward as much. I was seeing outpatients constantly. And I was at a period of time where it was just me for like five, six hours. So I would see everyone. And that period of time, the visits were at its maximal capacity, but I was the only one seeing them at that point. We were understaffed. So I had to figure out a way to see them, but also spend enough time. Because the problem is, because we were understaffed, doctors didn't, psychiatrists didn't spend time with the patients. And I tried to spend as much time as I could. And it was frustrating because I reached a realization that the patients benefited more from the attention I offered than the medication I than the medication I prescribed. And I was constantly minimizing the medication as much as possible. Because to me, medication is a biochemical crutch, but obviously I need to prescribe it. If somebody's coming, let's say, with I've seen everything from meth to glue addiction. People would come with, for example, substance-induced psychotic disorders, mood disorders, anxiety disorders. Some people would be uh, undiagnosed schizophrenics or you know, or coming with depression or bipolar. So they weren't diagnosed. And so we had, we had to refer them to the psychiatry, psychiatry hospital, psychiatric hospital. And as I continued, I just, get on, I just started to become more and more frustrated with the system, more frustrated with the fact that we were understaffed in terms of it's medication focused when medication doesn't solve the problem. And I never really believed that it did. But I would give medication to minimize the use of it, but maximize its benefits. So if I'm giving it for withdrawal symptoms, that's okay. If I'm giving it for intoxication symptoms, that's okay. If I'm giving it for the substance-induced disorder, that's okay. 
but I don't need to prescribe it for too long. So I minimized it. And I got better results than anyone else. And But I was always frustrated, constantly frustrated. Why? Because of the relapse. You have detoxification followed by behavioral modification and then rehabilitation. You go through different phases. You detoxify, then you treat, and then you start to adjust the behaviors. And then they basically leave the hospital or they're an outpatient and they continue to follow up. But the problem is the pressures, the triggers, the emotions. I don't have an actual statistic, but what I can tell you is at least 95% of every single patient came from broken homes. And that's not to say that someone that comes from a broken home is going to become an addict, but it was just an observation, almost 95%. Either the, co- the, the mother and father are divorced, or, some, or, or the, mother, the wife is widowed, or he's just juggling, or they're just fighting all the time. A broken home to me is not just actually fragmented, but they're living together, but they're fighting all the time as well. But divorce is, was, was a, high, a very high percentage, which is interesting. And obviously, um, children may feel that they're not unconditionally accepted if there's a problem. It's very easy for the child to blame themselves if their parents are not together. Very easy for that to happen. Which is why if the separation needs to happen, or the term uncoupling, it needs to happen. It needs to happen in a way that allows the child to realize that they will still continue to be unconditionally accepted and it's not their fault. And there's definitely going to be a trauma there anyway that needs to be healed. Definitely. So you found that with this medication, it's just treating the symptoms rather than the cause. Exactly. And so I decided to leave the practice and explore the mind in a different way. So I started interviewing different experts, learning from different experts, who I believe are unorthodox psychologists, people that are masters of the mind in a unique way, that can do things that isn't taught in academia, but is being explored by academia right now. How did you learn about them? How did you pick the ones that you chose? I focus on, when I did, I was focusing on anyone that is a master of self, communicating with self, and anyone that is a master of communicating with others. So these are the two big categories for me. Because if I can learn to communicate with myself, I can learn to communicate with others by translating that and vice versa. So an example of self-communication, Wim Hof is an example, communicating with his self to basically step into the ice, relax into the tension and the stress within that, for example. The second is a samurai in Japan. When I learned, I did sword fighting and I did Aikijutsu with a samurai in Japan. It was really, really interesting. A tea master is an example as well. It's about mastering the person, mastering yourself as you engage as well. Because Wim Hof was engaging with the ice bath, the water, the cold water, and the tea master was engaging with the objects in terms of making tea. It's a very interesting a ritual. And then you have mastering communication with others. So I met the top, the best public- Hey guys, I have a very exciting announcement to make. I've started working with my very first sponsor, and it's none other than, drumroll, Momo Kombucha. Our own London-based, locally produced, healthy and delicious kombucha that I've been a fan of since I first tried it. For those of you who know me, you know that I'm obsessed with my health, but at the same time, I'm a devout foodie and nothing will make me renounce tasty food and drink. Unfortunately, most delicious drinks are full of sugar and other additives that are not good for your health. This is why I love Momo so much. 
It's delicious, so it curbs my cravings for snacks and healthy, as it contains loads of probiotics that are great for your gut. If you'd like to try it yourself, use the discount code ISTHISIT15 to get a 15% off of your first order. Public speaker I've ever come across, Bo Eason. You can't look... One of the things he... I remember him teaching me. One of the things he said before he started teaching me is... It's not just me, actually. For him, I didn't do one-on-one with him. But he was saying, I can't promise you anything, but this is the only promise I can make. If you do the training and you follow my instructions, no one will ever be able to look away from you again. That's the only promise I can make. And that's a powerful promise because you can turn that on and you can turn it off. And it's very powerful. So that's something in terms of communicating with other people. I learned magic, training with magicians, Uh, They're amazing showmans. I learned pickpocketing, which was fantastic, actually. Um, Don't worry. Don't worry. We're good. Um, But interviewing, that was more of an interview, actually, specifically. But uh, my phone was stolen off out of my pocket like three, five times in the first three minutes. What? Five times in the first three minutes, which blew me away. But he's a master. And that's the reason why I wanted to learn from him. He's a master of attention management. But what's his secret? Well, pickpocketing is a metaphor for that. But to learn to master the attention of other people is to learn to gain someone's attention, to learn to maintain their attention, to learn to distract them, redirect their attention so you can do something behind their backs. Or in terms of healing, sometimes, and that was one of the things in terms of application, is getting someone that is focusing on something in a way to redirect them in their mind away from the thing that they're so afraid of letting go of to allow them to let go of it. So that's another form of repurposing. The three things I normally do, I think it's important for everybody to know what their unique abilities are. And the three unique abilities I have is repurposing knowledge, reapplication, finding applications that people wouldn't come up with because it just doesn't make sense, connecting the dots, and simplifying the complex. I have, and I've heard this from a lot of people, but I've noticed how it's very easy for me to simplify something that is extremely complex, the way I look at it. And there are a couple of things that happened in my life that shifted me in that, that were, that adjusted the way my brain worked to enable that. What were they? It kind of allowed me to tap into it. I, have you heard of the seven human intelligences? Howard Gardner talks about it. The seven, and he expanded it, but I got it when I was about 20 years old. Seven human intelligences, like everybody has at least one or two intelligences that they excel in. Leonardo da Vinci excelled in seven, all seven. The seven human intelligences include kinesthetic, people that are good with their bodies, like athletes, dancers, actors, and so forth. Uh, music, musical intelligence, people that are good, that are singers, instrumentalists, and so forth. Linguists, people that are good in language in general. And math, that's another one logical, mathematical. A fifth one is intra and inter, five and six, intra and interpersonal in terms of connection, connecting with yourself. So people that are really good in meditation, mindfulness, and so forth, and teach that. And then you have people that are good with other people in therapy, for example, spatial. So the spatial is basically architects, painters, artists, Laura, special, spatial intelligence, your sister, spatial intelligence, people that navigate. So people that have high that are high in spatial intelligence include London cab drivers because they can navigate their, in terms of space, the, their relationship to space, for example. So 
a thought that I had when I was 20 years old when I touched upon that. What if I can focus on identifying the ones that I'm good at, but actively work in the things that I'm terrible at and try to enhance all seven intelligences? And I believe that was something that helped. Just focusing on doing that. You don't have to be super high in all of them, but just focusing on the seven. Learning an instrument, which I did. I play the piano, I play the guitar. I sing. Learning dancing, you know, creating and looking at it through the lens of the seven intelligences can change so much. In fact, looking at the school system, I think the seven intelligences would be fantastic to teach children using the filter of the seven human intelligences. So that's one thing that I know over time, for, the, for over 20 years, that was something that was always there, something that I kept on actively focusing on enhancing. The second was I read The 4-Hour Workweek, Tim Ferriss. And there was something about the way he approached things that woke something up inside me. And so I started looking at things in a very different way, to the degree that a few years back when I was interviewed, and I'm trying to remember which interview, someone was telling me, you're like Tim Ferriss for the mind, deconstructing things, streamlining things. But there was something that really I resonated with that shifted. And then the final thing was learning, because I got into magic, I learned how to shuffle cards. And something I wanted to do that was really interesting was, can I teach my non-dominant hand something that my dominant hand doesn't even know? So that my non-dominant hand would be an expert in something that my dominant hand isn't. That's like an extreme. Instead of learning something with my dominant and then teaching my non-dominant, how, do I, how about going to the extreme? And so I taught myself using my left hand, my non-dominant hand, how to do a one-hand shuffle. So you shuffle the cards with one hand, which wasn't easy. And I did that for 30 days and I became really good at it. Once the 30 days were done, I woke up probably a few days after that and the world was never the same. The way I looked at everything was never the same. The patterns, I see patterns, I see connections, I see, and I just became focused and obsessed with making connections. And I geared that energy towards making connections when it comes to understanding the mind that a lot of people approached it in different ways. My metaphor for what I did by approaching all these different experts is if you were to imagine a tree and a leaf is falling, if you were a physicist, how would you look at that tree? How would you look at that leaf? You're going to see it from a physicist's perspective. You're going to see it, you're going to focus on the acceleration, airflow, resistance, gravity, and so forth. If you were a chemist, you would focus on it differently. You'd see the, you would notice the biochemical uh, reaction that led to the breaking of the leaf, the degradation, the interaction with the soil when it touches the ground. If you were an artist, you would look at the dancing leaf in a different way. The dance, the elegance of the movement, the light, the shade. What if you were a physicist and a chemist and an artist? How would you look at that leaf? You're going to see something no one else can see, make a connection no one else can make, and maybe even solve a problem no one else can solve. That was my obsession in learning so many different approaches towards the mind and connecting the dots once I do. And so I, I was able to look at things a bit differently. The reason why it's easy for me to apply something to something else that people wouldn't even imagine is because I learned two things that are seemingly unrelated, but they are. And I can see the, I can see the similarities and the connections. And it's just about finding that application. You're talking about generalism. Exactly. Which I absolutely loved. I listened to this um, concept of yours in one of the podcasts that you did. 
and I absolutely loved it. I was going to ask you to elaborate on that, but you, you're doing this beautifully. Glad to hear it. It struck me also because during my life, I, I always had a problem with having to identify myself to one profession. And I almost avoided and hesitated for very many years to even try and pursue new things because I was overthinking in my head and I said, well, if I do this now and then I spend 10 years, I want to do many different things. I want to learn many different things and I want to be more than just this one thing. So that really spoke to me. The more, we need more generalists. Specialists are important, but we have too many specialists. And it pigeonholes our resources. It pigeonholes us and limits us. When you have more people that are experts in multiple fields, which is the way it was in the past, by the way. When you look at Leonardo da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci wasn't just an artist. And I would argue the reason why he was perceived as a genius is because he was curious and fascinated by so many things that allowed him to see things differently. And prior to that, during the Islamic civilization, a lot of Muslim scholars and scientists were more than just that. And we can, over, you can go beyond, before that as well, but a lot of the greatest advancements happened during that period of time. And that happened simply because the person that is a mathematician is also a musician is also... So you have multiple intelligences being tapped. That's part of the generalism as well. And multiple fields. If you want the most creative solution to a problem in your field, get someone from outside your field. Because they would see something that you wouldn't be able to see because you're seeing it through your lens. And when you see it through your lens, you are seeing it through the principles of your subject, of, your, of the science that you have. When I learned to play music, I still don't, I'm going to add that. I'm going to learn how to read and write music. I've been, I've written over 45 different songs without knowing how to read notes. One of the things that I did at the beginning is I was asking a music teacher, and I received the most unusual advice. The fact that you don't know how to read music means that you can play in ways that we as musicians are limited by because we have rules to follow and you can break every single one of them because you don't even know they exist. And someone that studied music theory would be like, those two can't go together, so they wouldn't even try it. But someone that doesn't understand it can do something that makes them like, that makes sense, but I never, I would have never thought of that. Because if you don't understand the rules sometimes, and this is not to say don't understand rules, but sometimes the rules of the game allows you to know how to play it and break it if you need to. But sometimes, in certain scenarios, not understanding the rules gives you freedom to become a better player because you get to try things that no one would ever dare to try within reason, with respect and kindness and compassion without harming others, of course. And I'm just putting that as a disclaimer. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm just saying, if you don't know the rules, then you don't know what you're breaking. This reminds me of something that Tony Robbins mentioned in one of his interviews, or he was interviewing someone, uh, I think the father of the Gerber children uh, that were on the photo. And what he was asking him is, how does it feel to simultaneously have five or six children? I think it was five, it was quintuplets. And he said, minimize the number of rules as much as possible. Because if you have too many rules, one of them is being broken and 
at certain times and you're going to be living in reaction. And this is why minimizing rules sometimes can be extremely powerful, which ties this back to boundaries. Minimize your boundaries to the bare minimum. And one of the ways to do that is heal the wounds first. And now you will know what is a true boundary and what isn't. Because a lot of us have boundaries that aren't actually boundaries. They're just an illusion of a boundary, but it's actually a trigger in disguise. What you're saying is, that, that word hurts me. So that's a boundary. Why does that word hurt you? This is the only time I will use the word why. It's because of the emotions. Focus on the emotions, heal the wound, and it no longer bothers you. And then you have a choice of whether to keep enforcing it as a boundary or just to let it go and minimize your boundaries. Because boundaries can also trap us. Boundaries we create around us might push people away, but the boundaries also can keep us trapped and limit our ability to play and enjoy and explore the world. I want to circle back a little bit to language. Specifically, I think it's so important to ask empowering questions. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the art of asking good questions all about? Just to be clear, this is a meta question. You're asking me about asking. I'm asking you about You're asking, asking me a question about asking questions. <laughs> In terms of asking questions, I would say it depends on context. So if you want to ask questions, what kind of questions are you after? What kind of scenario is it? If I'm on a date, the type of questions I'll ask are different than if I'm learning. It's different than if I'm with a client. I'm coaching a client. It's different than if I'm in a university. It's different than I'm in one-on-one -on -one with a mentor. Is there something that permeates all of them? That's a good question. That's an example of a good question. And here's why. That's very specific. Good questions are formulated, let's say, let's use learning, because I think learning is, yeah, it kind of grounds this a bit, makes it more tangible. So to, to learn, I don't believe in stupid questions. If the question is because you don't know something and you're trying to move yourself from the unknown to the known, it's a good question. There are advanced questions and basic questions, but there are no stupid questions. So if you're going to ask a question, make sure it's straight to the point, direct, simple, short, concise, and make sure that it's formulated in a way that answers the question that gives you the answer you want, or you don't know what the answer is, but it's the answer you're after. You can, if you're after a, an open-ended question, that's an open-ended answer, because you just want the person to talk and you want to grab so much information, kind of like a whale open its, opening its mouth, that's fine. But if you want to be more specific, more strategic with your time with someone, so that you can ask more questions. It makes sense to ask laser-focused questions. I think a, a very important thing is make sure, in, make sure your questions are, are, have a clear intention. If they have a clear intention, like I'm asking this question because I want to answer, I want that answer, or I'm asking this question because I want that person to keep talking, that's a clear intention. So you're creating an open-ended question anyway. As long as you know what you're asking about, don't just ask the question for the sake of asking it. One final thing I would say, I would need to think more about this actually, because that's a really good question um, to structure questions. Because all I do is ask questions with all the experts, with the interviews, with never thought of it that way. So that's a great question for me to reflect on. But I would, I would say when you ask a question, make sure you ask the question and you don't justify it. A lot of people need to justify the question. So if I'm in a seminar and I raise my hand, I stand up, I tell them who I am, I tell them why I'm there, and I kind of create an exposition and a story in a way to justify the answer, to justify asking the question. The reason why I'm asking this question is this. This is what they're saying. 
So I was here and I was struggling and I was doing this and I was doing that. And so I arrived at a point in my life where this happened. So here's my question. We didn't need the exposition. All you needed to do was basically ask the question. So there's a caveat with that one. If you're interviewing, sometimes just constantly asking questions makes it more transactional than flowing and conversational. So for example, with Dr. Gabramate, when I was asking questions, it was important to have a bridge between his answer and my next question. And the bridge is usually either an insight that came up as a response to his answer or a comment, something I remembered, a story or something to share or a comment. And then I asked the question. And it's a comment or an insight that is a good bridge for the next question. It makes sense and it makes sense to comment. It's not an easy thing to do, but the more you do it, the easier it becomes. That's not exposition. That's common courtesy and that's being respectful for the, for the person that you're interviewing as a guest because you wouldn't want them to feel that they're interrogated. Does that make sense? Okay, so question one, this, you're done? Okay, so let's move on to question number two. It's like it's a job interview yeah. or it's an interrogation. You shift that when you turn it into a conversation by just adding a little bit of a bridge, a linguistic bridge between his answer or her answer or, or their answer and the question. Okay. Thank you. Does that answer your question about questions? That does answer my question about questions. Great. Thank you. Absolutely. I would like to ask you about something that's very dear to me as a topic before we wrap up, which is purpose. Before I ask you if you found yours and what it is, I want to ask you, what is your definition of purpose? I'll be 100% honest with you, as I always would like to be authentic and honest. I'm not usually a fan of that word because talk about labels and identity. Sometimes we choose a purpose and we think it's ours and we get trapped into it. So this is my purpose. And then they get committed. Remember I told you having the flexibility, you can have a purpose as long as you're flexible to change it. You can have a purpose that is either a destination or a journey. And it's more flexible to have it as a journey because you're ongoingly fulfilled. If it's something that you keep pursuing, you're going to stay motivated to a degree. And there's no right or wrong when it comes to that. You can have a purpose as a destination, something you still don't have that you're moving towards, but that's a goal. Purpose is a deeper thing. And sometimes people get lost in the purpose that they forget to have a journey. They're focusing on the destination. They forget to have a journey. And so to me, having a purpose can be important as a compass. Let me put it this way. How you define purpose determines how useful it is. So how it do be, you define it? It can be extremely useful. And I understand when you say it's dear to you, it's because it's a lot of people feel lost. And as generalists, some people may perceive someone that is a generalist as someone that just doesn't know what they want. And maybe sometimes that's the case. We're exploring to see what sticks or we're exploring to keep adding tools we don't need to be just one thing. We don't need to become just one thing. It's not that we're trying to find ourselves. Sometimes that's the case. And I guess when you heal the wounds, then you're operating completely differently when you're being a generalist. But it's important to define it in a way that actually serves you. So the question is, is it a destination or is it a process? Number one. Number two, because it has benefits on both ways, in both ways. Number two, whether it's a definition or whether it's a destination or a process, do you have flexibility to change it? Or are you committed to it because you feel like you no longer are who you are if you abandon 
the purpose, because it's not abandoning. You're shifting, you're pivoting, and it's okay. So that's, that's another way of looking at it. My definition, let's get to that. And I don't really, to be honest, I don't really have a definition because I was just focused on so many different things. But if I were to think of a definition, a purpose is a temporary state, but let's say if we were to choose it to be a permanent, temporarily permanent, always need to be flexible, always need to be flexible. It's what you feel you are meant to do and be with the world. What do you feel you are meant to do and be? And that's off the top of my head, but as I'm thinking about it out loud, the reason why I think that would work for me at least is purpose can be a combination of mastery and the pursuit of mastery, passion, and value. Do you feel valued by others? Do you feel valuable when you do it? Do you feel like you're adding value to the world? These are the three pillars I would say for that. And then you have mastery and you have passion. Mastery doesn't mean that you've already mastered it, but you're pursuing it. And passion alone is not enough. But I think that combination might be an interesting formula. Or at least that's what's coming up to me in, at the moment. I 100% resonate with what you said. And that is my understanding of it. If I had to say what is my definition of purpose, I would distill it into a simple, the reason why you exist. But what I mean by that is if you don't do it, and it's not going to be any specific thing. If you don't do it, you, you will feel that there's something missing in your life. And if I had to describe it more deeply, that's exactly, those, those would be the three things that I would say that you just mentioned. So something that you love to do, so you're passionate about, something that you're really good at, which kind of links in with the, with the passion. And then the last one, instead of value, I'd call it service because we are social, social creatures. And in, in, my, in my journey, I realized that whatever goals or pursuits that I had set for myself, unless they were connected and they were serving other people, they meant nothing. They never brought me true fulfillment or happiness. And so that was the missing part. So yeah, that's, that's, that would be my recipe of purpose. That's interesting because when it comes to value, the reason why I separated them is it doesn't matter if other people find it valuable or find, sorry, find me valuable. It doesn't matter if other people find me valuable. If I find what I do valuable, I feel valuable when I do it. I feel important, significant, connected. I feel valuable when I do it. That's the most important thing. And serving others is, is extremely important as long as you focus on yourself first. Focusing on others as long as you focus on yourself first. Yeah, Right. I agree. If you're waiting for other people to give you the confirmation that what you're doing is valuable, then you're going to be waiting for validation. You're going to be seeking approval. You're no longer in control. You're going to be depending on other people. If you truly feel that what you're operating on and what you're doing is actually valuable and you're adding value to the world, serving, it doesn't matter if people don't see that. You know you're adding value and you're honest about this. And you feel valuable. That's the self-esteem coming. It's extremely important for us to feel that instead of waiting for other people. And connecting with others are important, but it's important to allow ourselves to feel that for ourselves without others and then include others. Because if it's others first, then us, we will resent them. We will resent ourselves for allowing that to happen. We will feel empty and we will only feel fulfilled 
when we serve others, but that also builds fear and shame in exploring our truth that we're so afraid of, of, of focusing on, which is the reason why we don't want to be alone. We want to focus on other people. We don't want to be alone. We don't want to deal with what we have. We don't want our pain. If serving, let me put it this way, it's just coming to me right now. If serving others is a distraction from your own pain, you're doing others and yourself a disservice. Let me put it that way. This specific point that you just mentioned is something that I thought about a couple of years back in a, in a wrapper of a personal relationship. And I noticed that I have this tendency sometimes to do exactly that, to, in the desire to help the other person, I can sometimes get lost and sidetracked from actually focusing on some things that I need to fix in myself. But circling back to, um, to purpose and why I mentioned service, I think the distinction there is the intention. So absolutely, I agree with you. It starts from within and then progresses outwards because it starts and ends with you, right? But I think it's about the intention, at least for me, it was the, about the intention. So I don't, I don't need the validation or approval of the external world to tell me, yes, you are serving us. But I, I do need to know that I have the intention that goes beyond just myself. I'm not doing things just, just because of me not existing just for myself, because I find that that is very limiting, a very small way of living. Yes, 100%, you grow from within, always. But what good is a flower if no one ever sees it or smells it? Absolutely. And on this beautiful note, I will ask you my last question. What is your recipe for happiness? My recipe for happiness. I think when people want... When people want to pursue, I think happiness, first of all, is not something you pursue. It's supposed to be something within you already that we need to connect with. It's already there. The second is I think when people say, I want to be happy, what they're really saying is I want to feel peace. I want to feel safe. What we're really after is safety. And it's hard to be happy if we don't feel safe. That sense of safety is extremely important. Happy people tend to do two things. They, other, they either leave others alone so they can enjoy that happiness or they focus on helping others and sharing that happiness with others and teaching others how to be happy. That's it. Miserable people are just constantly going to be hurting others. And this ties into an abuse could be verbal, nonverbal, physical, or sexual. Criticism is a huge topic, by the way. I'm not a fan of criticism. I'm a fan of critical thinking. And there's a big distinction between the two. And that could be something to explore at some point in the future, but criticism is a form indirectly of abuse from the results from unconscious pain. Constantly trying to find the flaw in others, the flaw in what they do, as a distraction from the flaw in yourself that you've been shown by someone else that has the same pain, and it just continues. So with happiness, it's about safety. If you want to feel safe, if you want to feel happy, feel safe. How do I feel safe? One of the easiest things to do, as simple as it is, is to focus on everything that you can do to enhance a sense of safety, not comfort, because there is a difference. And again, that's something we can cover at some point. <laughs> Part two incoming, yeah, I'm giving, guys. I'm giving you... <laughs> Part three as well. Points. Um, in, in terms of peace and safety, because they're synonymous, really, I would say slowing down. Here's what I mean. Slowing down how you breathe, the way you breathe. Slowing down the way you move. Slowing down the way you engage with something slowing down your activity when you're doing something, take your time. 
When you slow down, you take your time. When you take your time, you're feeding your own, you're feeding yourself something extremely important. And I'll share the opposite to emphasize this. If you're constantly rushing to finish things, you're creating a sense of threat because there's a consequence you're trying to avoid. Even if there isn't a threat, the unconscious mind will come up with one. It might just be habit because you're always rushing to work. You're always rushing to get things done. You're always rushing to the, the, the appointment or the meeting your friends. It creates a sense of, of urgency constantly, which makes us live in fear and in threat constantly. Because what we're doing is we're telling ourselves there's a consequence I need to avoid. But if you slow down, if you take your time doing something, if you don't rush, what are you telling your unconscious mind? It's all good. It's all good. There is no threat. I'm safe. Slowing down also enhances precision. So whatever activity you're doing, speed compromises precision. So when you slow down, you're more likely to do it more effectively. You're more likely to do it in a way that makes you feel proud of yourself for what you've done. You're more likely to do it in a, in a better way so that you don't feel ashamed of the mediocrity of the outcome because you rushed it. And you know that if you took your time, you can do a better job. So you kind of let yourself down without needing to, without even thinking that you're doing over and over and over through every time you rush through something. But when you slow down, something else happens as well. You connect with yourself. It's hard to connect with yourself when you're speeding up. If you're in a car with the windows open and you're just driving 100 miles per hour with flowers on both sides, you're not going to have the opportunity to experience it or enjoy it. Anything can be more enjoyable and pleasurable when you slow down enough to connect to it, to have your senses take their time to absorb them. You get to enjoy, but another thing happens as well. You feel more valuable. Why? The message you're telling yourself when you slow down is that this activity is important. The activity that I just chose is important. And this activity is taking up moments of my life. And every moment of my life is important. And I'm taking my time to value it and to, do, to utilize it in the best way possible. That enhances our self-esteem when we slow down. Rushing kills our self-esteem because what we're saying is this moment doesn't matter. This activity doesn't matter. I just want to get it over with. We don't matter. It's an extension of that. So there are many things I could talk about in terms of happiness, but it ties into safety, most likely. Maybe not all the time. Maybe other things will emerge. But off the top of my head, it would be that. Mm. Slow down. Take your time. Give yourself permission to enjoy what you're doing, to do it well, to give it the time it needs, to give it the time it deserves. And suddenly you will feel safer because there is no threat when you slow down. Slowing down is training, retraining your nervous system that everything's okay. There's no way there's a tiger in front of you and you're going to slow down your breathing. You're going to be still. You're going to just relax and take your time. You're going to move slower. There's no way there's going to be a tiger and your nervous system is going to let you do that. But it's like we're running away from, we're, we're running away from an invisible tiger our entire life. I love that you gave this answer because that is something that everyone, everyone can work on. Absolutely. Especially Slowing down here. is someone that everyone can do. We live in a world that is super fast. Sam, thank you infinitely. You've illuminated and uplifted 
myself and I'm sure everyone that's listening. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say, and thank you for having me. Hello, friends. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe and share it with someone. I would love to hear your feedback and suggestions as to what guests you would like to see on the show next. See you next week.